You could point at many different moments in history and declare them to be the spark that eventually kindled into the modern world. But one of the more convincing of these arguments posits that it was the development and deployment of state sovereignty, often called Westphalian sovereignty, that shaped the modern geopolitical landscape because of how it helped define the outlines, in a literal sense, of the modern nation-state. In essence, Westphalian sovereignty says that every country has authority over what happens within its own borders, so the U.S. government decides and manages what happens within U.S. borders. France controls their stuff. Nigeria decides what happens within Nigeria, and so on. This concept, though seemingly obvious to the point of being the default assumption today, wasn't so obvious or baseline back in the mid-17th century, when it emerged from the Peace of Westphalia, which brought both the Thirty and Eighty Years' Wars to an end in Europe. And it still wasn't obvious when this concept was further refined in the 18th century to include more detailed assumptions about non-interference basically to what degree can governments meddle in their neighbor's business. And initially, the conclusion was that they shouldn't interfere at all. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, especially following the First and Second World Wars, this concept was adjusted a bit, as it became clear that if you're completely non-interventionist, things like the Kaiser and Hitler happen. And that can then create a sort of vortex that pulls everyone else into conflict, whether they want to be involved or not. Not intervening, in some cases, can result in the upending of an otherwise stable order that allows governments to exist alongside each other without getting up in each other's business most of the time. The modern international system is predicated, consequently, on generally leaving each other alone, but also a mesh of interconnections between governments that allows them to do business with each other, create treaties and other relationships while also criticizing, punishing, and otherwise hating upon their enemies, all without, most of the time, going to war. As a result of our long history of violence, followed by a period of global warfare and the establishment of systems that allow us to deal with each other without going to war, the past three decades or so have been, by most metrics, the most peaceful in all of recorded human history. Now this claim, to some, will sound ridiculous. There is war, there is conflict and strife and terrorism and abuse and all sorts of other large-scale violence happening all the time, globally, in the 21st century. The claim, though, is not that we've achieved world peace. It's that compared to previous generations, folks alive today have seen far less war in particular and violent and deadly conflict in general as well. We've also seen far less overall deadly violence of all sorts. So even though we've seen more terrorism and other sorts of non-warfare conflict and similar efforts in some parts of the world, even those have been less deadly on average compared to what previous generations had to deal with. And this is partially the consequence of just how violent our history has been and partly the consequence of that international order, which, among other things, made it very expensive in terms of resources and reputation to go to war. It also made working together with others a lot more profitable than terrorizing perceived enemies and made capturing land a lot less lucrative than it was back in the day. 
In general, today, it's better to steal resources via hacking than it is to capture a plot of land from an enemy because of the consequences associated with the latter and the often lack of consequences associated with the former, and because investing in that land to keep it profitable is just as likely to result in liabilities rather than profits, while also creating a brand new attack surface that you have to defend against other potential enemies from that point forward. We've been heavily incentivized to stop going to war with each other then. And although we've seen a steady drumbeat of conflicts, just like any other generation, these conflicts have tended to be smaller in scale and chronological scope, less deadly for those involved, and are almost always headed off by other members of the international community before they can explode into physical combat in the first place. Now that said, violations of this trend do still happen, and the most headline-grabbing of such violations, as of the day I'm recording this at least, is Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine. We have not seen a land war in Europe since World War II, and Russia seemingly attempting to reclaim some of what they lost when the Soviet Union collapsed is alarming for all sorts of reasons, globally, alongside all the immediate tangible consequences like the upending of global trade routes and food supply chains and energy-related relationships. What I'd like to talk about today, though, are some of the other large-scale conflicts that are happening in the background, wars that have been ongoing for years and which are still going on today, but which have largely fallen out of the daily news cycle because of where they are, who is involved, and the types of warfare that are being waged. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. As I mentioned in the intro, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing, as I record this at least, conflict that has emerged as a consequence of that invasion is the most headline-dominating war happening in the world at the moment. And part of that is the novelty. A land war in Europe really is unusual in the modern era though it was incredibly common before Westphalian sovereignty, to the point of being almost comical. These things were happening all the time back then. And part of why this conflict is so headline-grabbing comes back to the macro storyline of a former superpower trying to reclaim that status and a European nation being invaded, which feels a bit discordant and weird to many people, as most modern conflict takes place in relatively poor and perceptually less developed regions, and because of the sheer weight of countervailing forces at play, including the sanctions hurled at Russia by much of the international community post-invasion, and the weaponry that's being sent to Ukrainian soldiers from many of those same governments. But this is far from the only war being fought around the world right now, and though most of the other conflicts are on a scale and of such a limited locality that folks elsewhere around the world can be forgiven for either not knowing that they're happening or not paying attention to them over the course of years in some cases, despite that distance and marathon-like nature of some of these conflicts, that doesn't mean that they're not important, not massively impactful on the lives of the people stuck in the midst of them, by choice or by happenstance, pure bad luck. And it doesn't mean that they don't influence happenings elsewhere around the world as well, even if perhaps not to the degree the conflict in Ukraine and larger potential theoretical conflicts like a war between Russia and NATO or the US and China might. 
The Syrian civil war, for instance, kicked off in early 2011 as part of the larger wave of Arab Spring uprisings around the Middle East and parts of northern Africa. President Bashar al-Assad, who is a dictator in everything but name, faced a wave of protests calling for his removal, so he did what tyrants tend to do in such circumstances and violently suppressed them. This then spiraled, again, as violent suppressions by tyrants often do, into a full-blown insurgency that, over the course of more than a decade, has pulled in a bunch of other players, with the governments, Assad's, military forces on one side, the Syrian National Army, the Free Syrian Army, and Tahrir al-Sham, which is a Sunni Islamist militant group, all on the other side, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a mostly but not exclusively Kurdish military organization, on a third side, and on a fourth side, we have the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, also known as Daesh. In addition to those four main players, we also have gobs of outside support, coming from primarily Russia, Iran, and the militant and political organization Hezbollah for Assad's government, alongside periodic support from the Iraqi government, though they are mostly helping to fight the Islamic State rather than helping the Syrian government more holistically, while those various rebel groups receive support from the United States, from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UK, France, Israel, and the Netherlands, that support taking various shapes, mostly financial. This conflict has become a cesspool of war crimes and illegal munitions, including cluster bombs, napalm-like incendiaries, and chemical weapons like sarin, chlorine gas, and other such crimes against humanity-linked no-go zones. As far as modern war goes, this is a pretty hellish war for those involved. It has also led to waves of refugees to surrounding countries, especially to Turkey, Jordan, and Iraq, and it's estimated that something like one in three Syrian citizens had fled to other countries as of 2013, and by 2020, there were over 5.6 million officially tallied Syrian refugees, many of which are now being pressured to leave the countries they fled to because the governments housing them either don't want to keep paying to keep them there or simply can't sustain those kinds of numbers. Turkey alone has accepted something like a few million people from Syria over the course of this conflict. So even if they truly wanted to house them all, which politically, typically they kind of don't, that would still be a pretty steep price tag to pay for a politically inexpedient, if internationally celebrated, humanitarian effort. It's estimated that something like half a million people have been killed during this civil war, which represents about 2% of the country's pre-war population, and as tends to be the case with such numbers, this is considered to be a massive undercount, because most deaths in such a conflict would likely have gone untallied. Alongside the human devastation, it's been estimated that around half a trillion dollars of damage has been done over the course of this conflict, in terms of infrastructure and other things that can be tallied in this way and then repaired or rebuilt. And while there are peace efforts in motion, this conflict has gotten so muddied with so many international interests involved and using it as a sort of proxy conflict, it's unclear whether and how that would happen anytime in the near future. Many earlier peace efforts have been hamstrung by the sheer number of interests and parties involved, 
periodic ceasefires have been consistently broken, and the COVID-19 pandemic has added to the economic, infrastructural, and human devastation in the region. Recent high-level reports suggest that no end is in sight for this Syrian civil war, and this will continue to grind onward for some time unless something unforeseen currently and significant changes. Another civil war, this one happening just a few countries away, south and east of Syria, is ongoing in Yemen. This conflict was sparked in late 2014, a few years after the Syrian civil war kicked off, when a militant movement called the Houthis took over the Yemeni capital city, and shortly thereafter the seat of the government and the then-sitting government run by a former Yemeni military figure fled the country. The Houthis took city after city, but then a collection of local military groups supported by the Saudi Arabian government stepped in, mostly with airstrikes at first, but then eventually with boots on the ground as well, to put that government, led by that former military man who fled, back in power. So we've got a Saudi-supported government, which was in power initially, on one side, and that coalition has several other local interests on its side as well. And the Houthis, which have long been backed by the Iranian government, though there's been no direct military intervention by Iran, just various types of support, they are on the other side of this conflict. Consequently, this civil war has been framed as a proxy battle between the Saudis and Iran, which are the two biggest, most powerful entities in the Middle East, and which basically hate each other because of that dynamic and because of their differing views about ideology, government, and pretty much everything else. Recent data from the United Nations suggests that more than 150,000 people have been killed in this civil war, alongside more than 200,000 that have died from an ongoing famine and overall lack of health care before and during the COVID pandemic. And both of these shortages of food and health care services are consequences of this war. As of 2022, this conflict is still ongoing, with little reason to believe it will completely end anytime soon. Though there was a largely successful ceasefire in April of 2022 that allowed fuel to be imported to the region and some flights to arrive and leave. That ceasefire was extended in June, and pretty much everyone involved, including the United States, which until recently supported the Saudis in their mostly missiles and artillery-based campaign against the Houthis, they've all vocally supported this temporary truce and reportedly put a decent chunk of effort and resources into extending it beyond August, and possibly even finding a means of ending the conflict at some undefined point in some undefined way as well. A little further southwest, just across the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, Ethiopia's government has been at war with the Tigray Defense Forces, which consist of several Tigray region militant groups, Tigray being part of Ethiopia, including the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, the Tigray Independence Party, and a bunch of Ethiopian soldiers who have deserted to join the Tigrayan opposition. These groups have been at each other's throats since 2018, when the TPLF was ousted from their position running the larger Ethiopian government, by some measures as an authoritarian nationalist entity, at which point they left and headed up into the northern Tigray region of the country, just along the border with neighboring Eritrea, and ran things up there in opposition to the central federal Ethiopian government. 
The TPLF was still technically part of the ruling government then, but they'd set themselves apart. And when other groups merged into a new prosperity party in 2019, the TPLF refused to join. And in 2020, when elections were delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the TPLF rejected the delay and held their own elections. And the Ethiopian government said, hey, you can't do that. And they significantly cut federal funding to the Tigrayan region as a punishment. And the TPLF said, well, that's tantamount to a declaration of war, which in November of 2020 was sparked into an actual war when the Tigray Special Forces attacked the Ethiopian National Defense Force headquarters up near Tigray. The TPLF said they attacked out of preemptive self-defense, and the next day, the Ethiopian military attacked back, and the Ethiopian government declared a state of emergency, shut down all government services to Tigray, and began to launch airstrikes against TPLF forces. In the years since, Ethiopian and Tigrayan forces have shifted back and forth in terms of who seems to have the upper hand, who's taking the other's bases, and which is forced to resort to guerrilla tactics, while the other launches large and straightforward attacks using tanks and bombers and artillery. The Eritrean military, to a comparably limited degree, has also gotten involved, entering the conflict on the side of the main Ethiopian government, as the Tigrayans, located right there on the border with Eritrea, are not huge fans of the Eritrean government and military, and have periodically hit targets across the border. For a while, it looked like the TPLF might make it all the way down to the Ethiopian capital city, a wave of successful attacks getting them pretty close, but then they were pushed back and forced to re-establish themselves within Tigray, their forces largely destroyed beyond those regional borders. The conflict has since spilled over into Sudan, where tens of thousands of Ethiopian citizens have fled, mostly illegally, and there have been claims that the Ethiopian military has bombed and ambushed Sudanese forces, though it's tricky to tell who did what and why in the area, as there are several militant groups operating in that region as well. We've also seen Ethiopian soldiers duke it out with Somalian soldiers when the former attempted to disarm a few dozen troops who were originally from Tigray, but who had since joined the Somalian military. There are rumors as well that Somalian soldiers trained in Eritrea have been crossing the northern border with Tigray in order to carry out secret missions for the Ethiopian government. This is an unverified claim at the moment, but it demonstrates just how interconnected and involved some of these governments are, that this would seem like a real possibility to so many people in the region. There have also been abundant reports of war crimes in this conflict. The use of rape and other types of violence against citizens as weapons of terror by all involved groups on both sides. And this conflict has amplified existing famine issues stemming from a long, multi-year period of drought that was then made worse by supply chain and other pandemic-related issues that made getting food and healthcare into the region difficult and at times impossible. And that conflict then further exacerbated these issues because healthcare organizations could not get resources into the region safely. This war has looked like it might end several times over the past few years, but such efforts have been consistently derailed by one side or the other quibbling with who would be involved, who would mediate. Talks of secession by Tigray 
and conflicting desires by the varying groups on the Tigrayan side in particular. Non-African governments have also stepped in to support the Ethiopian government, including the UAE, Iran, and Turkey. Increasingly, sanctions are being applied to entities that seem to be worsening the war, including those providing training and weapons and money to the various involved groups. But it's anyone's guess at this point if the peace process will continue, as, at the moment, it seems to be stalled, though there has been a relatively successful ceasefire that has allowed some humanitarian aid into the region over the past few months. We will see if that leads to anything else, though at the moment, there's not a lot of optimism about that. There are other ongoing conflicts as well, most of which are smaller in terms of scale, but not necessarily in terms of humanitarian impact. Whatever the size of these conflicts, uninvolved locals almost always suffer horribly when these types of wars, undeclared or declared, break out around them. The Mexican government's war on drug cartels, for instance, began in earnest in 2006, but has arguably been ongoing in some form since the 1980s and involves a bogglingly complex set of groups, many of which are entwined with and have infiltrated themselves into the very police forces that have been trained by the government to fight them. The current president of Mexico declared that this particular conflict ended in 2018, but this statement hasn't really been taken seriously by anyone, and militarized engagements between well-funded cartels with heavy weaponry at their disposal and well-trained government forces continue throughout the country and the region. Myanmar is also engaged in an ongoing struggle, which began in 2021 following the military's takeover of the civilian government, a successful coup, which then spiraled from protests to lockdowns to an extended conflict between mostly rural insurgent forces and that military junta that took over after booting the previous, mostly civilian, government. It's estimated that since the coup, around 21,000 people have been killed in actual fighting, terrorist attacks, assaults by government forces against protesters, and government-led executions. And there is currently no reason to believe that this will end anytime soon. And by some indications, the direct conflicts are actually just now beginning to spin up and expand in scope and scale as those outside anti-government groups build up their ranks and their weaponry. While Ukraine dominates headlines then, and by some measures rightly so, though we'll see what happens as the conflict enters a more grinding, less externally eventful stage, which can sometimes then relegate these types of conflicts to below-the-fold or third or fourth page newspaper real estate. Despite that, there are many other military conflicts happening around the world right now. And though these conflicts have consequences that go far beyond the groups and borders directly impacted by them, and though the civilians in these areas, as tends to be the case in essentially every war, are suffering greatly, often through no fault of their own, by many measures, these conflicts are still quite small and less deadly when compared to military engagements of the past. That's in part because of how we do war these days, in part because of better medical care and things of that nature, and in part because of those international forces that, while in some cases they can make things worse and keep proxy battles going longer than they otherwise might, they can also apply non-military pressure to nudge involved parties toward positive, peaceful diplomatic outcomes, shifting disagreements from the battlefield to the halls of international organizations and courtrooms. 
The book I'd like to recommend today is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again by Johan Hari. This is far from the only book on this topic that's been published over the past five years or so, but it's an increasingly important topic, I believe, as many of the mediums and platforms that we use to consume all types of information, from things written about focus to explorations of the news or explorations of history or discussions of politics, many of them, and especially the most popular and successful of them, are increasingly oriented towards superficial views of these things. And there's a place for that, certainly. There are ways to expose people to information in bite-sized, concise ways that do not diminish and flatten the very topics they're trying to elucidate. But that's relatively uncommon as well, unfortunately. And in many cases, those bite-sized chunks are made most valuable when then followed up by deeper, more focused and substantial elucidations of the same. This book is about the incentives and the psychological triggers and all sorts of other variables that make it more likely, year by year, that we will spend more time with superficial versions of things than deep and dense resources that help us explore the same. And part of that problem is our ability, or lack of ability, to focus which itself is also atrophied by our habitual engagement with these relatively more superficial approaches to information dissemination. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Stolen Focus and reading a book cover to cover is actually a great way to step outside that superficiality, by the way. You can pick up a copy of Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my work, including my other podcasts at understandery.com and my newest project, which is an email focused on climate-related news, can be found at climatehappenings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.